Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Hello, and you are listening to the Church Militant Podcast. This podcast exists to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to take up the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, to see Christ as worthy of all sacrifice, and to fight the good fight of faith. It has been a while since our last episode. I have, uh, for a short while, been extremely busy. My work schedule, uh, add to that, we've been doing some home renovations, uh, about with a stomach bug. Uh, we've been visiting a church uh, that is almost two hours away. Anyways, as it goes, uh, in the providence of God, we have not had the additional time to get an episode out. But also, I think, in the wisdom and in the providence of God, I think it's been for the better because it's allowed some time to pass since the local controversy surrounding the revival here in Union Grove, North Carolina. Um, and I'm hoping that allowing the time to pass has allowed some of the emotions to die down and that God will use that to open the door for a more widespread hearing of what I want to talk about on the, today's episode. If I mention the name Jonathan Edwards, most of us would be familiar with the great awakening preacher who famously preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That particular sermon is well known across the spectrum of various denominations of evangelicalism for its great biblical truth, for the power of God demonstrating in the preaching and the hearing of the truth it contained. We know it because it was given in a time of great revival, probably the likes of which this country has not seen since. What's not so well known is that the time of the Great Awakening was also a time of much excess, a time of what Edwards called fanaticism, a time of false religion cloaked in apparent zeal and emotionalism. It was a time where the genuine demonstration of the power of God was countered by the enemy of Christ with emotionalism, and Jonathan Edwards recognized these things. He was deeply grieved over the reality of deception and preoccupation with emotion and fervor. He was grieved because mere emotionalism was being deemed and accepted as revival. And in fact, after having some time to consider what he had seen, Edwards took up to writing two works relating to revival. He wrote a work entitled A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections, which is it's not as lengthy as some of his other works, but it is still quite a lengthy dealing with the nature of religious affections, their source, the practical manifestations of such true affections in the soul and in the life. And he also wrote a smaller work, which I'm using as the basis, or you could say the floor plan, the blueprint of what I want to discuss in today's episode. And that work was entitled The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. Now, it's a relevant consideration because in our day, just as it was in the time of Edwards, there was a tendency to elevate experience, especially emotional experience, to the position of final authority in determining whether something was a genuine move of the Holy Spirit. And in the recent revival here in Union Grove, experience was used to address the critics, yours truly, from the pulpit, in the following way. Uh, I don't have the technological capabilities to play this directly, so I'm hoping that this will pick up on the microphone here. I just wanted to play a clip of this for you. 
Uh, This is from the revival at Calvary Baptist Church in Union Grove, North Carolina. They're going to change it up. They're going to sing another song tonight. And boy, it's one of our favorites. It's one of our absolute favorites. You worship the Lord as they sing tonight. And folks are coming. If you've got a need tonight, you come on. Come on this evening. Man, I'm especially, I just, my heart's broke, you know. I, I know. Oh, I know. We got some critics. Critic I, here. You're going to have a few after a week like this. The only problem is the critics hadn't been here. And that's the problem. You and just, the critics hadn't met with the people that I've met with this week. I just haven't come and experienced it. And the it. critics haven't saw the tears. And the critics haven't saw the broken hearts and the broken lives and the broken homes and the critics haven't heard the stories that we've heard this week of people who came to make a decision for Christ and when we asked them about their decision and I and, and listen there's not one this week that we've just we've tried to get them to doubt or, or make some kind of a Coerced decision. The irony of coercion being I, mentioned while the slow them, emotional music about, is being played in the background. Salvation. Tell me about your salvation. That's what I say. Tell me about your salvation. And I'm hoping that I can confirm it with them. That's what I'm hoping to do. And time and time and time again, and you can ask my wife, time and time again this week, as people have come to us and I said, Tell me about your salvation. There was nothing there. There was nothing to point back to. Okay, all right, that's about as much as I can handle. So, there was nothing there, he says. He says there was nothing there, there was nothing to point back to. Well, what are we pointing back to? If the Spirit is at work in the heart of a believer and in the life of a genuine believer, there won't just be things to point back to, there'll be things to point to now. So, mentioning the experience, the critics haven't been there, they haven't experienced it, and not only have the critics not experienced it for themselves, he's arguing, but the critics haven't come and heard the experiences of, the, of those who have experienced it. So the whole argument here is based on experience. Now, experiences can be genuine, and yet they can be genuinely misinterpreted. In fact, the gentleman you just heard speaking there... Um, Pastor Stephen Pope from Calvary Baptist Church. Actually, in one of the one of the sermons in the two-week-long meeting, he preached a sermon in which he kept saying over and over, you can be sincere and then be sincerely wrong. Well, maybe a sister statement to that could be, you can have a genuine experience, and yet that experience be genuinely misinterpreted. So call me old-fashioned, but in light of our ability and probably tendency to misinterpret our experiences, all of our experiences should be interpreted through the lens of Scripture. Remember, it is Jesus who doesn't need anyone to bear witness about what is in man because He knows what's in man. It's our Creator who knows how we are. He's the one who knit us together. He knows our frame. You remember the words of the Apostle Peter who writing about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration, which I would say is an experience that Neither you nor myself have had anything even remotely close to. 
He's there with James and John and Christ, and Christ is transfigured before them. He's shining in, in the radiant effulgence of his glory. Moses and Elijah come down. God comes in a cloud and thunders his voice, and Moses and Elijah are taken away, and the disciples are just completely awestruck at such an experience as you should be and as you would be. But listen to how the Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, writes concerning that experience. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him on the holy mount. That's as about a genuine experience as you can have. Then he says this in verse 19. But we have this also a more sure word of prophecy. Or literally, we have this more sure, the word of prophecy. He's talking about the scripture. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rise in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He's saying, yes, I've had this experience, and we know even from the Scripture itself that his experience was genuine. And yet he's saying, here's what's more sure, the scripture itself. Why? Because this isn't tied down to someone's private interpretation, someone's subjective opinion of an experience they have. This has come to us from God himself. So when someone raises a question or a concern or is critical about something calling itself revival, those who are taking part in the meeting often respond with a sense of personal offense as if, you don't get to tell me what I've experienced. Understand this. It's not a question of if you have had an experience or not. The question is, according to the Word of God, have you experienced the work of the Spirit of God? You see, this isn't your opinion versus my opinion. This isn't a question of one's denomination preference versus another's. This isn't a question of one worship methodology versus another. It's a matter of what saith the Lord. And from my time in these circles, from the conversations I've had with people still in these circles, I think the one thing we would all agree on is we want to be biblical Christians. We want to be Bible-believing Christians, Bible-believing, Bible-practicing Christians. So let's come together to the Word of God and to kind of lay out the framework or lay the stepping stones along the path, as it were. We look to Jonathan Edwards for some help as he considers the distinguishing marks of the Spirit of God. And he does so by beginning in 1 John chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, the apostle writes, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So as we come to this passage, some things that I notice first away, first, first off, is that it's given in the negative. He says, beloved, do not, he's giving a command in negative, do not believe every spirit. This means, and, and it's often, this is often the retort of people, 
But doesn't the Bible say, thou shalt not judge? Who are you to judge? Who do you have the place to? Who do you, who are you to say what one church is doing or what? Well, when someone comes out and says revival is happening, the scripture gives us a command here to automatically be critical. Not everything that is called a work of the Spirit of God is in fact the Spirit of God. This passage calls for a holy, humble carefulness, a caution. But it goes beyond a caution. It calls for testing, a trying. The word actually means to carefully examine something for the purpose of being able to distinguish between what is genuine and what is false. It puts the believer on the side of caution and carefulness and testing rather than on the side of a bandwagoner who's heard the noise and come to share in the excitement. And you might be wondering, why? Why would the Scripture give such an imperative? Why why would the apostle give this caution, this command to say, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits? Well, the reason is here in the text itself. He says, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. That is, the church of Jesus Christ has a very real enemy who trying to present himself as an angel of light, the scripture tells us, he's actually the father of lies and he seeks to steal, to kill, to destroy. And he uses the weapons of false religion to do just that. One of the most effective weapons in the arsenal of the enemy is the self-deception that he gives to men through the means of false religion. Think about the Pharisees who would tell Jesus again and again of their great spiritual heritage, their impressive commitment to go beyond the written law, their carefulness to live and walk uprightly. And yet Jesus is constantly calling them scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, children of the devil. Uh, he says that you are, you're making proselytes who are threefold sons of hell, worse than yourself. Inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. This is the reality. This is the reason for being cautious. This is the reason for biblical examination. It's commanded to us by the Holy Spirit-inspired apostle. And it's commanded because we have a real enemy who masquerades himself as an angel of light, who goes about giving men false hope, not merely merely in the throes of rampant wickedness and paganism, but very often in the the church clothes of false religion. So, with this caution given here in the text, Edwards moves, as it were, to kind of clear the air. He wants to say, listen, I'm not being critical for these reasons. So he also begins in the negative, and we'll consider some of these negative points he makes. The first thing he says is, just because a movement seems extraordinary or unusual, it doesn't mean that it is false. He writes these words, quote, Nothing can be certainly concluded from this that a work is carried on in a way very unusual and extraordinary, provided the variety or differences be such as may still be comprehended within the limits of Scripture. End quote. The main idea of what he's getting at here is sometimes the older generation can write things off as different. Well, that's different than how we've done it our whole lives. I'm, I don't ever remember it being this way. My parents never talked about it being this way. And since it's new, it must be false. If it's new, it's wrong. If it's extraordinary or unusual or new to us, of course it's not the Spirit of God. God's never moved that way in our day. 
And what he's saying is just because something is new to one generation or seems extraordinary or unusual, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a false move. It doesn't mean that that God is not at work. Consider the great Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther has brought face to face with the reality of justification by faith alone. And the preaching and printing of this gospel truth spreads like wildfire. Biblical Reformation is spreading along with it. Sure, you could say, this is all a bit too exciting. This is a bit unusual. It's a bit extraordinary. Look how people are reacting. Monks are leaving the monastery. Nuns are leaving the nunnery. People are leaving the Roman Catholic Church. That's the only true church. People are not offering penance and prayers anymore. What in the world? This is, this is just this is extraordinary. This, there's no way this is a true move of the Spirit of God. It's so unusual. But that would not be the case. It couldn't be said that because of its unusualness that it was false. Because we know from greater church history and then from the scripture itself, it was actually a return from false religion to the truths of the biblical gospel. And notice, while we're saying that just because it's new or it's unusual or it's extraordinary doesn't mean necessarily that it's false, notice Edwards still gives this caveat, bringing it back to the truth of scripture. He says, These things are okay. The newness, the extraordinary nature of it, the unusualness, those are okay provided the variety or the differences be such as may still be comprehended within the limits of Scripture. So in questioning a revival, he's saying, if you want to know whether it's genuine or not, just because it's extraordinary doesn't mean it's not genuine, but it still should fall within the parameters of Scripture. So again, we're coming back to the Scripture. This isn't a blank check. This isn't an open window for whatever. Oh, well, it's new. That doesn't necessarily mean it's not a work of the Spirit. Well, no, it doesn't. But if it is contrary to the Scripture, that does mean it is not a work of the Spirit of God. But just to make the argument clear, Edwards begins here by saying, listen, there's no concern or critique or caution here just because it's extraordinary, just because it seems like, you know, 95 people have professed faith this week. Oh, that's just out. That's crazy. That's that can't be a real revival. That's not what that's not the way you critique something, especially in light of the scripture. So secondly, he goes on to say, quote, a work is not to be judged of by any effects on the body of men, such as tears, trembling, groans, loud outcries, agonies of body, or the felling of bodily strength. End quote. Now, I want to note here, while I'm not going to read through Edward's section on this, I recommend you go do so, but it's important to note he's speaking of this in both ways. We do not look at a revival and conclude just because people are in tears or shouting with joy, oh, it must be genuine move of the Spirit of God. But nor should we conclude that since there's not not a lot of weeping or not a lot of crying or nobody's shouting or quote-unquote running the aisles, oh, well, then it must not be a move of the Spirit of God. Because what Edwards rightly notes, and as we see this demonstrated in Scripture, experiences and messages can have an effect upon the physical body, and they can evidence genuine conviction of sin and conversion, or they can give just a normal emotional response. Remember when the news came that Eli's sons had been killed, and Israel had been defeated in battle before the Philistines, and the Ark of the Covenant had been lost. Eli's daughter-in-law is so overwhelmed at the news she goes into labor. Eli falls back out of his chair. 
Or think about the disciples seeing Christ walking upon the sea. Such an experience caused these grown men, who had, many of them had spent their life on the sea, grown, hardened men, crying out in fear. Think about those who had gathered when Lazarus had died. And as Mary runs out of the house to meet Jesus, the, the people who had come to pay their respects suppose she's going out to the tomb to weep. So they follow her, and just, just because she is running and weeping, they're overcome with grief, and they begin to weep. Think about those who in Acts chapter 14, the Gentiles, when they hear that the gospel was coming to the Gentiles, they cry out rejoicing in the truth and then they're converted. So we see this broad spectrum of the, the physical response, the physical effect that an environment or news can have upon a person. Think about it. If, you, if you're afraid of heights and you, you go visit the mountain somewhere and you look over a cliff, you get that stirring in your stomach. That doesn't mean that the Spirit of God is moving upon you in sinfulness or that the Spirit of God is moving upon you, convicting you of your sinfulness. It's a natural response from the body. Or you consider those of you who have had a powerful conversion experience where the Spirit of God did move upon you in such a way that there was a, your body physically came under the weight of the glory of God and the reality of your sin and the goodness and the love of Christ. Truth may come to bear upon the soul of a man in such a way that it causes fear and trembling or weeping or shouts of joy. But we also must understand music can do those things. Being in a certain environment can do those things. The actions of those around you can cause you to do those things. We must remember at this point also the Spirit does not move in a manner that is contrary to the Scripture. The fruit of the Spirit, the Scripture tells us, is self-control. All things in the church, Paul told the Corinthians, is to be done decently and in order. God is not the author of confusion. But we must not look at weeping, trembling, or the absence thereof as the final authority for the genuineness of the move of the Spirit of God. Oh, well, people were crying and coming to the altar. It must have been a real move of God. Well, not necessarily. The prophets of Baal were moving and weeping and crying and screaming for half a day. So that's what Edwards is saying. Just because these physical effects are being manifested on the bodies of men, it doesn't necessarily mean this is a move of the Spirit of God or that this is not a move of the Spirit of God. And then he gives several other points that are what I think to be outworkings of those to which I would point you to the work itself to read. The third one that I want to call your attention to, Edwards puts in these words. He says, quote, If some who were thought to be wrought upon fall away into gross error or scandalous practice, it's no argument that the work in general is not the work of the Spirit of God. Just because there may be false converts and false professions does not necessarily mean the whole of the movement is false. Now it's here where I'm going to stop and be a little bit transparent with you. I have been guilty of falling into this category where the mere fact that it seems the people that I know who are associated with these groups have turned out to be false converts that I then conclude from that we'll see it wasn't a true, genuine move of the Spirit of God. But Edwards teaches me some things here, and if you are prone to think that way, hopefully he can teach you something here as well. Consider the biblical example of Judas. He walked with the Lord. He witnessed the power of Christ. He seen the miracles, performed miracles himself, the Scripture seems to imply. 
He heard the pure word from the living word. He was named among the disciples, and yet Christ tells us he was a devil from the beginning. And eventually, he manifested what was in his heart. But because he was a devil and a false convert, does that mean that the work of Christ was false? Does that mean we write off the preaching of Christ as false? Of course not. Consider Simon the sorcerer. Acts chapter 8, he hears the gospel, he professes faith, he's baptized. He's following the disciples' teaching, and then yet a short time later reveals he's only interested in the power, only in the experience. And as Peter says, he shows that he has no part in Christ. So just because someone falls away from grace, just because they manifest that they were never truly converted in the first place, it doesn't mean that because they made a false profession that the movement itself is false. Fourth thing Edwards points to. It is no argument that a work is not from the Spirit of God, that it seems to be promoted by ministers insisting very much on the terrors of God's holy law and that with a great deal of pathos and earnestness. He says, quote, If there be really a hell of such dreadful and never-ending torments as is generally supposed, of which multitudes are in great danger and into which the greater part of men in Christian countries do actually from generation to generation fall, for want of a sense of its terribleness, then why is it not proper for those who have the care of souls to take great pains to make men sensible of it? What he's saying here is to preach with fervor the horrors of hell is necessary. However, the truth of hell must be presented as the manifestation of a holy God's just righteous indignation against sin as its just reward. This is the God of infinite holiness who gives to man life and breath and everything. Hell is the manifestation, the horror of an eternity of God's wrath poured out on sin. It is not merely a scare tactic to put people in such an emotional fear that they utter a prayer especially when you consider that the message being presented mentions nothing of God's wrath, nothing of man's rebellion, nothing of gospel reconciliation, nothing of union with Christ. I mean, if you tell someone driving down the road that the bridge is out in a mile, they're going to turn around and go the other way. That's not the manner in which you preach hell. Divorced from the truth of man's depravity, man's rebellion, and his hostility against God, divorced of the truth of God's holiness, goodness, justice, graciousness extended in Christ, you preach for 15 minutes on how horrible hell is, the pain, the agony, the eternal nature of it, and then you say, oh, but Jesus died on the cross and rose again the third day so that if you ask him to save you, you won't have to go to this place. Let's bow our heads for prayer. That's not, that's not how hell is presented in the Scripture. That's not how we preach. However, it cannot be said that it is not a genuine move of the Spirit because there is preaching about hell. And I'm not saying that about a revival, especially about this particular one. So those are some of the negatives Edwards uses to kind of clear the air. So now I want to consider some positives. And the reason that I'm using Edwards as a framework for this is because I think he rightly comes to Scripture. Remember, Scripture is more sure than our personal subjective experiences. So according to the Scriptures, what are some distinguishing marks of a genuine move of the Spirit of God? 
making his appeal from 1 John chapter 4. This is the first one Edwards points out. Quote, When the operation or when this work of the Spirit of God is such as to raise the esteem of the Jesus who was born of a virgin, was crucified without the gates of Jerusalem, and seems more to confirm and establish the mind and the truth of what the gospel declares to us of his being the Son of God and the Savior of the world, it is a sure sign that this move is from the Spirit of God. End quote. The apostle is saying this in 1 John chapter 4, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. This is what Jesus taught us in the Upper Room Discourse. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and he testifies concerning Christ. So we can rightly test a so-called movement of God or, quote, revival by how it esteems Christ, by the centrality and the exaltation of Christ, of his person, of his work among a people. So this is the truth of his person. He is Jesus of Nazareth. But he's the Son of God. He has come in the flesh. He is the Christ of God. He is the one whom Moses and the Psalms and the prophets bear witness to. He is the one who has come in the flesh so that he might take upon himself a human nature to live in our stead, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law in our place, to stand as our representative before God, drink down the wrath that we deserve, earn a perfect righteousness for us, pay the penalty for our sin, taste death for his people, conquer and be the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead, ascend on high as a man, be accepted before God, the one to whom the gates open, the king of glory who has come in. The ancient doors swing open before him and he comes in and sits down on the mercy seat with the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much more superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The Lord says to him, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the one. This Jesus, his person, his work. The priest, the prophet, the king of his people. Our intercessor. Our beloved. To appeal to the imagery of the Song of Songs, the one whom the bridegroom cries out, Draw me after you and my heart will run. This is this Jesus. This is the work of the Spirit of God. It comes and it confesses Jesus Christ, not merely with the mouth, but with the heart, the affections, with the life. It loves this Jesus. It seeks to lift him up. The Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the church cries out, this is our Savior. So if you look at a work of God, and Christ is presented as nothing more than a get-out-of-hell-free card, there's no centrality, there's no exaltation of His person and work. It's all based on my personal experience. And it's not based on Christ. And we can say, this Spirit is not confessing Jesus Christ, so it is not from God. The second thing Edwards points out here in the passage from 1 John chapter 4, he says, quote, When the spirit that is at work operates against the interests of Satan's kingdom, which lies in encouraging and establishing sin and cherishing men's worldly lusts, this is a sure sign that it is a true and not a false spirit. The apostle says in 1 John 4 verse 3, Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. 
This is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. This text is telling us that those who belong to Christ are opposed to and overcome the world and its kingdom and its rulers. But those who are of the kingdom of darkness listen to and cherish the things of the world. This is why John could say earlier in chapter 2, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Shortly after the supposed revival here, one of those who was dialoguing with me concerning the genuineness of the revival, the sinfulness or the error of my concern and questioning it, posted a picture to his social media page of a prostitute as a joke and gave me the explanation that he was, he believed Jesus had paid for his sins and he just had a sense of humor. Those who belong to Christ and those who are experiencing the work of the Spirit of God experience a work that is diametrically opposed to the interests of Satan's kingdom. They will not be encouraged or established or cherishing the things of this present evil world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. By this we contest whether a work is a work of the Spirit of God. Thirdly, Edward says this, quote, The Spirit that operates in such a manner as to cause in men a greater regard to the Holy Scriptures and establishes them more in their truth and divinity is certainly the Spirit of God. Again, he's building off of what the Apostle John is saying here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 6. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We should be wary of a movement or a meeting where emotion is elevated over the word because faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of Christ. These emotional stirrings that are rooted in loud, high-pitched, slow, dramatic music that appeal to emotionally stirring illustrations right before the invitation is given, these movements are almost always coupled with the practical negligence of the Word of God, both in preaching and in practice. Now, don't get me wrong. There will be biblical language. There will be references to the Bible's authority. Just, we, just want to, we just want to believe. We just want to obey the Bible, it'll be said. But it's all a facade because music and emotion are really the central the central place. They're the central focus. Experience is the final authority. Again, the critics, it was said, haven't been here. I shouldn't have to be there. If I can watch what's happening and compare it to the Scripture, I can come to a conclusion. I don't have to be there. I don't have to hear the music. I don't have to hear the sob stories. I don't have to, to have the experiences laid out from and before me. The Scripture is the final authority. It'll be said in these kind of meetings, we're just going to try to obey the Lord in the service tonight. And yet there's no order. What that means is the pastor is going to do whatever he feels God wants him to do, as if the Scripture hasn't given us what we ought to do when we gather together. 
Paul told Timothy, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how a man ought to behave himself in the household of God. The instructions given to the church in 1 Corinthians 14. You begin in chapter 11 regarding the head covering. You move on to the practice of the Lord's Supper, chapter 11. Chapter 12, you get to the exercising of the spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, the supremacy of true spirit-filled love. Chapter 14, prophecy and prayer, the silence of women, the role of the prophets, all of these things in the church. It, it comes to this crescendo where Paul says, let it all be done decently and in order, for God is not the author of confusion. To which we say amen. But we also say God has given us his word. And he's not whispering sweet nothings into the pastor's ear about, quote, what ought to be done in the service tonight, end quote. Because you see that in these services where emotion and experience is central, if the spirit, quote, breaks out or, quote, gets all over somebody, no one will even open up the Bible and preach at all. It'll just be music. Loud singing, which is normally dominated by women. Loud, feminine singing. Emotional appeals again and again while the piano plays slowly and drastically. And the scripture is just set aside. Well, that's certainly not the mark of the Spirit of God. Of the Spirit of God. There is no revival in scripture or in history where the Word of God has not been the means by which the Spirit of God works. And where the Word of God is not as a result of the true move of the Spirit of God esteemed higher and higher in the lives of those who have been revived and in the churches that have experienced revival. It's, it's often said in these quote-unquote revivalistic circles that they don't follow men, they follow God's Word. And yet the entirety of their revival meeting structure and practice is derived directly from men like Charles Finney rather than the Scripture. So we can judge these Whoever is of God heareth us. Whoever does not, whoever is not of God doesn't hear us. There will be an increasing esteem of the authority and the centrality and the sufficiency of God's word as a result of the true move, of a true move of the Spirit of God. Fourthly, Edward says, if a spirit that is at work among a people operates as a spirit of love to God and man, it is a sure sign that it is the Spirit of God. This is what the Apostle lays out here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, and he continues the theme on through the end of the chapter. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love for God is and love for man. Love to God manifests itself in obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. The whole of God's law is summed up in these words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If there is no personal, practical, progressive growth in loving obedience to God, there is no move of the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not talking about external conformity to a religious, uh, to, to a particular religious camp's list or to, 
your camp's particular particularities. Now you've gone from wearing a mossy oak shirt to church. Now you wear a shirt and tie. Uh, you used to wear shorts and pants, ladies, but now you wear long skirts. Uh, man, you used to have long hair, but now you got a haircut. I'm not talking about that. Or you pulled your kids out of home, out of public school. I'm not talking about that. None of those things are wrong in and of themselves or right in and of themselves, except we could argue for homeschooling. Take your kids out of government schools. For the love of Christ, take them out. But to avoid a rabbit trail, we're talking about genuine obedience to the laws of the Lord as your delight because your heart has been transformed by the Spirit of God. Loving obedience to God's Word. The Spirit gives life. The promise of the new covenant is that the Spirit would come and write God's law on the heart and cause God's people to be careful to obey. We're talking about genuine, personal, practical, loving obedience to God. This is in the way you think, the things you desire, the things you put your hands to, the things you spend your money on, the way you speak to people, the way you treat your spouse, the way you raise your kids, the way you work your job, things that the Scripture, all the Scripture deals with. It's easy to go to church three times a week. It's hard to practice patience, forgiveness, love for your family, for your wife, which is why love for God is joined with love for neighbor. Here's, here's, here's one before we move on to love for one another. Love for God's day. Love for God's day. How many times did God rebuke his people in the Old Testament and tell them that they needed to stop doing their pleasure on his holy day? Call the Sabbath a delight. Now Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that there remains a weekly Sabbath for the people of God. But just as God rested from his work at creation, Christ has rested from his work. So there remains a Sabbath day for the people of God. The Sabbath hasn't been put away because Christ has rested from his work. In fact, it's established as the new covenant day, the day when Christ rested, which is why we worship on Sundays. Is there a practical love for God's law, for his commandments, for his day? And then also love for one another. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by the love you have for one another. I'm not talking about niceness. Scripture defines love for us. We love one another by obeying God's commands regarding one another. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. If anyone is caught in a transgression, restore one another. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do not neglect to meet together with one another. The scripture is replete with one another commands. And remember, this also means at times correcting one another because love, the scripture tells us, rejoiceth not at iniquity, but rejoiceth at the truth. So we could go on critiquing revival, and we could go to many other passages in the scripture and put these things to the test. But just think what a wonderful, sufficient, framework is given to us here in 1 John chapter 4, 1 through 7. And how graciously did God give to the church men like Jonathan Edward to experience genuine revival and yet was also confronted with false revivals. To take a text like this and to lead us through it. 
and say, this is what the Spirit of God does. This is the manifestation, or this, these are the distinguishing marks of a genuine move of the Spirit of God. This is how we must test that which calls itself a revival. Not by the number of people who have professed faith. Not by the level of emotional excitement around the meetings. Not by the amount of people who have come to the altar. Not by, not by the charisma of the preacher. Not by people's willingness to come to church every night or stay late in spite of having other things to do. None of those things are distinguishing marks of the Spirit of God. And especially I want to emphasize, because of the way that the criticisms were addressed, a particular experience, emotional or otherwise, is no guarantee of a move of the Spirit of God. Listen, people go to Alcoholics Anonymous and have their lives changed. People listen to a TED Talk, and the trajectory of their life is changed. People meet someone, fall in love, get in a relationship, and the trajectory of their life is changed. People go to rehab, and the trajectory of their life is changed. People fall out of relationships, and the trajectory of their life is changed. We're not talking about just an emotional experience that changed some things about the way you do life. Is Christ being raised higher and higher in your esteem? Is Christ the center? Are you preoccupied and consumed and obsessed with his person and with his work? Or is he just a get-out-of-hell-free card that stirred up an emotion and an experience you had one time? Is there an increased hostility against Satan and his kingdom? Is there a practical moving away from the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life? Or is there religious emotion in the meeting and then ungodly lusts away from it? Is there a greater regard for delight in and submission to the Word of God? Is it the final authority? Or is emotion your final authority? Is there a present and increasing love and obedience to God for His law? And is there an increasing love for the brethren? Or is there just a mere external association with people who like the same kind of music and preaching style that you do? We're asking according to the Scripture... Are there the distinguishing marks of a move of the Spirit of God? And here's why. Again, this is not me versus you, me versus Pastor Pope, Calvary. This, this, isn't, this isn't personal. It isn't, it, it, it isn't a quest I'm on to make people angry. I don't like, I don't like people being angry with me. I don't like not being liked. I don't enjoy being an enemy of people. I don't enjoy people despising me. I don't enjoy losing friends and family members. I don't enjoy these things. But the scripture says, do not believe every spirit that cries revival because many of the sparks of quote-unquote revival fire is nothing more than flash paper in the hands of the enemy to deceive and damn the hearers. I love you. I said this last time, and it, I'm concerned 
many multitudes will be deceived by the emotional stirrings of false religion. We must be men and women of Scripture. We must take God at His word. We must, in faith, believe that the Spirit works and moves in the way that God says He does. We must not determine the Spirit's work by our own experiences. We must not make our own experiences and our own preferences the final authority. And we must not deceive people, either knowingly or otherwise, to come and participate to the peril of their souls. Beloved, Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. My name is Jordan Grogan. You've been listening to the Church Militant Podcast on the distinguishing marks of the move of the Spirit of God. Thank you for listening.